This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is uh, Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Um, very, very um, privileged to be joined this morning by uh, Mo Shake with possibly one of the most impressive resumes I think I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Good morning, Mo. <laughs> morning, morning. It's going to take me all day to read uh, to read out your resume. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, just. Be there, done that. One T-shirt. <laughs> um, but for those who, for those who are watching, um, I think Mo's most well known. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, as being the uh, former head of the South African Secret Service, uh, basically the head of Intel. Yes, uh, that that is the infamous one. I thought I thought I would be more famous because of the Heifer Commission, but I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it's because of the intelligence. Uh, the intelligence uh, portfolio, which was the head of the Secret Service, as you would know, mm. that was the the head, uh, uh, the person responsible for the management of the our foreign intelligence yeah. uh, capabilities. So, the intelligence effort throughout the world uh, is what I had to manage. Well. Let me just see if I can summarize, at least in one paragraph, your your resume. I mean, other than being part of this uh, state security, um, I mean, you've been part of the international um, division at the development back of Southern Africa, if I've got that right. Uh, you were part of Corp Africa. Uh, you're also a consul general um, in, was it Germany, I think? Uh, Hamburg, Germany. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You were um, an ambassador, uh, ambassador at um, in Algeria. If I've if I'm if I've got my memory correct, uh, you're a special That's advisor correct, to yeah. to Nkosizama um, Dlamini Zuma, uh, and also head of policy research, Mo, at the Department yes. of Foreign Affairs. Have I have I kind of got it right? Yes, you have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Jeez>. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a roundabout. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a, what a, what position have you enjoyed the most? Strangely, I would have to say uh, the international division of the bank. Right? I mean, the wow. development bank of Southern Africa. Yeah. Because that is or was a position of. Uh, great responsibility, but enormous uh, influence. Mm. Uh, you were lending money to, and because of the development bank, you lend money primarily to large infrastructure projects. Yeah. Uh, and these infra pro uh, infrastructure projects are almost invariably owned by the government to have some connection to a government in Africa. And that gave me an insight into into African governments, uh, mm. their strengths and weaknesses, and what do banks really look for when they make a decision about who to finance, what to finance, and when to finance it. For I mean, I'll give you an example. Any uh, any investment into Zambia mm. is invariably linked 
to the copper price. Any investment in Angola is invariably linked to the oil price. Because we're such in, in, in Africa, such a, a one commodity driven economy, right? And there was a time, even in South Africa, uh, you would have monitored or investors into South Africa would have monitored the gold price when gold was the most important commodity on which the South African economy was based. But thank God to, well, mm. thanks to the, the policymakers and to the whole system of capital that we had, we then diversified uh, out of the the single source uh, resource, uh, and which led to the industrialization of South Africa. Mm. Unfortunately, Africa has not been able to do that, so it is still very much dependent on the one resource. So you could imagine when the gold, when the when the copper price is high, in the mm. period of a commodity boom, uh, we would be smiling in the bank. But if the commodity price was going down, we would be panicking because much of our loans was based on the movements of, of, of the price of those commodities. So it was fascinating because it brought together everything. It brought together, and people would always ask me the question, uh, why, uh, you know, what that intelligence seems so different from banking, mm. etc. And I and I would tell them, no, that's not true. It is both bankers and intelligence officers are experts in the analysis of risk. In intelligence, it is primarily uh, political risk, national security risk that they evaluate, and in banks, it's invariably credit risk that they are evaluating. But it is the expertise on risk and risk management that is fundamentally the same, in my view. Uh, therefore, my transitioning into banking was was far easier than, than I imagined it would have been. Why did you leave? Why did I leave uh, the bank? Mm. Well, what do you think my age is? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Tou the bank... Touché. The, <laughs> the bank has a policy. All banks, most banks, have a policy that when you reach the age of 60, you would have to, uh, you would have to, to resign. Okay. Uh, that is why you don't see bankers beyond 60 in management positions. You would see them on the board, etc., mm. but not in management positions. So I did a bit of pre-planning. So just at the time, about I think a year before I turned 60, uh, and, and opportun the opportunity arose for me to take an early retirement, and, and I did so, so that I could transition into things I wanted to do beyond 60 because it's quite a brutal thing. When you turn 60 on your birthday, everyone comes to your office, mainly the security people. <laughs> they take over all the stuff and they literally lead you to the door. And that is a, and I had to do that for people who retired. 
and I saw what a traumatic experience it was, and I just didn't want to go through it, Jeremy. So I took a, a year before that so I could transition into what I do post-60. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, well played, Mo. I, I'd like to know a little bit about um, your upbringing. I know you, you grew up poor, um, and um, mm-hmm. I know you grew up on the wrong side of the apartheid government. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story, if you don't mind. Okay. So, I don't know whether you've uh, read uh, my book. Uh, the, um, the, the one that came out this year. The one that came out this year, the Inspire Bible, and I know it was affected by the lockdown, mm. etc. But please do read it. Uh, I don't go into details in the book, and I will do in the subsequent book that I'm writing. Uh, but I have a very strange set of genetics. Uh, from my mother's side, uh, my mother uh, was part white, uh, a percentage white. And my dad was very Indian-looking dad. Uh, and when they, when they had us as children, we, we developed the complexion that, that we did. Now, the one thing about apartheid, so when we grew up, we grew up in a very poor area. Uh, it is Springfield in, in, uh, in Durban, but it is actually quite developed now because of what I called... Indian economics, uh, which is essentially generational economics that has helped massively improve the 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 status of many many South Africans of Indian extraction. But the net effect of this uh, mixture of genes between my mom and dad produced us in a very unique way. So when you look at me, you would see, mm, the guy is Indian. But if an Indian guy looks at me, he would say, mm, the guy is colored. <laughs> if a colored person looks at me, he'll say, mm, this guy could be Malay. right? <laughs> uh, and as we grew older, as the skin complexion changed or whatever, and you shaved your hair, and, and accents change. Some people actually, mm, he looks Lebanese, or they look, uh, you know, maybe Mediterranean, right? So we always had this problem, that we never belonged to one particular group in a country very obsessed about racial classification. Mm. And... This is not only at the level of uh, at the level of uh, you know national groups. It was also the level of religion. My dad uh, was born into a Muslim family, very enlightened about Islam, and he raised us as children uh, born into the Islamic faith. So we practiced many of the Muslim traditions, etc. But he married, when my first mom passed on, my dad, and the woman who really raised us was my, my second mom. Uh, and she was from the Hindu faiths. So we were then introduced, you know, into understanding elements of the Hindu faith as well. We grew up in a colored area, 
which was predominantly of the Christian religion. Sure. Uh, and <laughs> wow. so we navigated also these corridors between uh, Islam, Hinduism, uh, Christianity. And I can tell you, you know, uh, my first introduction to Christmas Mass uh, was, you know, the, the, the church service you go to at midnight for the Catholics, yeah. you know, for, for moonlight mass. But there's another tradition about that, right? And that tradition is who takes the young girls to, 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 uh, to midnight mass? So do you wait after midnight mass for the period, you know, for midnight mass from the, come out of the church to the time to go to home? So I could tell you growing up in a colored area or in an area predominantly with Catholics, uh, in the Catholic Christian faith, <laughs> uh, I can tell you some of the benefits that comes with midnight mass <laughs> and, and so forth, you know. So, but, so initially, and, and, and I think there was a period in which this presented tremendous amount of uh, conflict for me. Mm. Conflict in my mind, the search to belong to one particular group, uh, not, you know, suffering the embarrassment of people's meanness uh, uh, in a country that was already mean by its racist policies. Uh, so not belonging or not fitting in a particular group also mean discriminated by others in that yeah. group. So, uh, and that also tightened the bonds between my many brothers so we used to hang out much together and be able to take care of each other in respect of this otherness that we had. But I must tell you that I'm now 60 plus and I now see it that that diversity uh, of genes and the diversity of experience is, is a remarkable gift which the universe has given to us. And, and I, really, I really embrace it. And I discuss it with my children and so forth mm. because my wife is a, a Canadian uh, woman. So I have two kids, uh, Gibran, who really looks like a white boy. I mean, like, imagine this white boy standing <laughs> up and saying, uh, I belong to a previously disadvantaged community, you know? So, okay, okay, that'll be interesting with his blonde hair, blue eyes. Uh, wow. And then I have a daughter... I have a daughter, Kay, who is looked like one of the most gorgeous cape-colored uh, <laughs> girls you would see, right? So, uh, so you can imagine when we uh, are having meals, some very interesting discussions happen around our meal tables about color, mm. racism, discrimination, uh, but it's fantastic. Yo, it, that is a remarkable, remarkable setup you've got. It's incredible. <laughs> you, you've covered all grounds. <laughs> um, but Mo, uh, I mean, we'll we'll come we'll come back to some of that stuff. Um, but I, I want to ask you now. So, you grew up then on the wrong side of the equation, obviously, uh, during apartheid. And so, so if if I've got my my history correct, uh, you you were an anti-apartheid activist um, and uh, you know you were part of the uprising um, and, yeah. and, and, as, and as such you got involved with the ANC liberation movement at the time is that, is that correct? That's correct that's correct the, 
But I must say, it all began with my father. My father was a member of what is called the Black Consciousness Movement. He was a supporter of the Black Consciousness Movement, and you'd know that the Black Consciousness, Steve Biko's mm. movement, and they, they did two or three quite amazing things that should be remembered in our country. The first is that it gave an identity to oppressed people in the country, be they indigenous African, uh, uh, colored Indian. It gave an identity to people that we were black. And you'll remember the slogans of the time. Well, maybe you're too young, Jeremy, but the slogans of the time <laughs> was black, black is beautiful, you know, uh, be proud, you know. And all of those slogans were were fundamentally around uh, liberating a victimhood in the mindset of black people. Mm. That we were victims, that we could not change our destiny, and we needed to take pride in who we are, in the colors we are, etc. And, and black consciousness played an enormous, enormous role in, in South African politics in respect of that. In fact, Almost all of the people of my age who were active in the struggle, be it in the ANC, had their beginnings in, in the black consciousness movement. So my dad was very much a supporter of the black consciousness movement. And the second thing the BCM did uh, was, you recall, I think it was in 1974, in, with the advent of the liberation of Mozambique, and essentially, when the Portuguese soldiers coup d'etat and then fled, Mozambique and Angola collapsed and were taken over by the liberation forces. In Mozambique, you had uh, Furlimo, and there was what is called the Pro-Furlimo Rally that was held in Durban, organized by the Black Consciousness when, Movement. When was this? 1974. So I was... Uh, I was uh, in Standard 8 in 1974, and my dad took us to this rally, which was in Curry's Fountain, which was a, a football stadium uh, just off the center of, of uh, Durban. Mm. And we went there, and my dad took us there, and as life would have it, it was a very brutal uh, gathering, in a sense that the police uh, uh, set their dogs amongst the, the crowds and people were bitten and beaten mm. up and arrested, etc. So I had in Standard 8 a very rough introduction into, into politics of South Africa. And it continued from there. Then my dad would take us to human rights activities. So... The point I'm making, Jeremy, is that my dad was very much part of our political introduction and our political induction mm. uh, to the extent that when we got to university, etc., uh, we continued our participation. So it was a, a always a dual thing. He was happy that we would participate. He was absolutely scared that we would get arrested uh, and that our participation will ruin our education trajectories. Uh, and I could see how over the years he struggled 
with this dichotomy. Yeah. Mm. Yes, you got to get him involved, but how much must you get involved? And, and that dichotomy or, or tension existed in many of the, the parents of, of my generation. Uh, and this is why, you know, when I say it was our parents' generation had reached the point of, of acceptance that apartheid could not be changed. Whereas we, on the other hand, came in with the view that we could change the system. Um, and somehow we got it right and there was a convergence globally to, to get this right. Otherwise, we too would have lived mm. under the generation of acceptance that apartheid mm. could not be changed. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's, I, I, just, I just wanted to make sure I yeah. didn't forget about my dad. Uh, and, and his contribution to my consciousness. Yeah, and I mean, and what you're saying is that there was this 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 mentality of oppression and victimhood, and it needed to be it needed to be broken. Do you think that that's been broken today, or do you think that that mentality lives on? That, in other words, the ANC uh, is still a liberation movement and not a political party, for example. That is such an important question. I think. Much of the ANC's uh, much of the ANC's challenges, difficulties, it is unable to deal with. Uh, and I know they're going to slaughter me for this. So what I'm in increasingly believing is to be a schizophrenic, uh, a schizophrenic character. Hmm? Is it a ruling party? And no, sorry about that. I really apologize. Not ruling. Is yeah. it a governing party? Right? Is it a governing party? Or is it a party that is governing? Or is it a liberatory movement? Or elements of the liberatory movement? Now, this is a very interesting uh, debate. I belong to a view that says... The ANC must accept that it is a governing party. It may have a liberatory objective. And the liberatory objective, I must say, is, is, is a objective that if does not matter who governs South Africa. Every, any party that governs South Africa, be it the EFF or the, the DA and everything in between, uh, would have to to address the historical legacies of this country. Because the apartheid baggage, in terms of underdevelopment, in terms of education, mm. in terms of housing, etc., is there, and we still live with it. And, they are the, and those issues are the drivers of what we call inequality. And we need to, to grapple with that problem. The parties that who can best grapple with that problem, uh, with policy, ideas, etc., uh, are, the, poli are the, the, the parties that, in the main, should be elected. So, I think the time is coming, and we are seeing it already in the ANC and the ructions and, and, and the problems that are there, is that the ANCs will have to start, and I think it is starting to grapple with 
the responsibilities of what it is to be a governing party in the trajectory towards modernity. Uh, we've got to, to move constantly as a modern society, an mm. evolving modern society, for which even the question of who is a citizen must be open for debate and must be, must be uh, equally understood by everyone. I mean, the fact that you consider yourself uh, or perceive yourself to be a less of a South African citizen than compared to Julius Malema, and because Julius Malema sometimes makes you feel like a less South African, uh, we need we need to debate those issues. Uh, mm. I, for one, am I am tired. Basically, you know, I spent an entire lifehood trying to 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 free a country from one system of oppression, uh, and now I'm in a country in which. I've got to demand my right to be perceived and included as an equal citizen. Uh, I think the ANC, my beloved organization, is getting that wrong. The debate about uh, the debate about the national question has always been at the center of the ANC's thinking, and I think the ANC needs to enter this debate again mm. and give leadership and give guidance to it. Uh, and I think that's how we will construct a, a, a different country. Mo, do you think perhaps it has to do with a lot of the old guard um, finding themselves no longer part of the ANC? I mean, let, let, me, let me put that another way. The old guard is the reason why you and I are able to have this conversation today. Hmm. Uh, do you think that a lot of the new blood just doesn't quite understand uh, what what the ANC was about? Sure, that that is a a very uh, a very real challenge that the ANC has, and 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 just the historical background to that. Mm. That when you were when the ANC was an illegal organization, <clears throat> uh, recruitment into the ANC was a very careful process, but also recruitment and conscientization was a very careful process. Uh, and a lot of time was spent in discussing and a lot of time was ex uh, spent in for you to understand mm. the, the nature of the problem in South Africa, the, the theory of change, etc. So you had at the end of the process a very conscious element. We don't have that anymore. Our school, ANC school... Uh, that is supposed to be training people, etc. Well, it's not doing all that well, and we governed by, and we have got one other problem. We have a million members, right, uh, or, or somewhere there. And I have a view also about this mass membership, which I think is the the law of quantity rather than the law of quality. Uh, but the difficulty is how do you organize the ANC in the context of it being a mass movement mm -hmm. and educate the ANC members uh, about the do's and don'ts of ANC members. Firstly, in, as a party that is governing and possibly will also have to deal with the fact that as parties come in and out, 
of uh, power, as Trump has got to know now, how do you deal with yourself when you are no longer a, a party in power? And I think it's for all of those reasons that the ANC really has to relook itself and answer its existential question, you know, what is the ANC today? It is, a, in my view, a governing party that has a liberatory project. And that liberatory project has to be done in a way that is acceptable to all South Africans. So, yes, you are right, Jeremy, that the, the, the ANC is a victim of its own success and how it grapples with the going forward. I mean, you know, the one thing I've learned from, from uh, the banking sector and perhaps the, the ANC could take a, a leaf out of it. That the, and I also learned this in, in business school, that the skills that you have that brought you to where you are are not the skills you need to take to where you go on to go to. Right? <clears throat> so the skills that the ANC had or the capacity that the ANC had to bring it to where it is is not the kind of skills and the capacity it needs to take it to where it wants to go to mm. in order to build a better country. Right? And that is a question that the ANC is going to deal with and the implications of that. And as a ruling party, what is, what is your capacity to, to govern efficiently, effectively, etc.? Now, every business, every private sector has to evaluate yeah. their operating model periodically. I'm of the view that the ANC's operating model right now is not serving the objectives for which it's, it's set because the operating model is one that belongs in a different era that served the objectives of that era. What it needs now is a different operating model. We could talk about the ANC all day, but let's, let's, go, let's go back a little bit. Uh, to 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 you again, and um, mm-hmm. I'm quite interested, um, Mo. Uh, 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 it was 1994, I think, where you got involved with state security. Is that right? Uh, I was involved in the negotiations from 1991. Yeah, but 1991 onwards, 1994 uh, was the amalgamation committee. Yeah. All right. So. How did you get into into that? I mean, when when people talk about intel and spies and and all this kind of thing, immediately we we start getting shivers and our hair stands up and we we hear KGB music. What was all that mm-hmm. about? Yeah. How did you get involved? So I uh, I got involved um, in in detention. I met a very interesting character, and I'm not going to tell you the just. Uh, Can I take a quick uh, promo here? Yes. You know, I just yes. want to grab <laughs> just one second. <laughs> so in in nineteen, can you see that? Uh, the, the, uh, no, the, swing the, it the other way. The, there we go. No, the, no, no. The, other direction. Other direction. ANC spy bible. There we go. There we yes, go. That's it. So in in when I was detained in. Uh, 1985, uh, I met a person in, uh, in detention. And this person 
to cut a long story short, uh, became a a significant cog in an intelligence uh, operation that gave me an introduction into the intelligence world and took me all over the world. So it took me to to London, to to East Germany, uh, came back. I sent people to Russia. They came back. And we started to build and an intelligence capacity uh, in, inside for the ANC inside the country. When the negotiations uh, started, there was a big debate about whether intelligence should be included or excluded from, uh, from the negotiation process. And the ANC insisted that intelligence should be included. And as a result of that, and the result of the work that my unit was doing, I was then incorporated into the, into the, the kind of think tank that started to advise the ANC on what should be in an intelligence paradigm. And as a result of that, I was then pushed to the center of uh, getting involved with, with the the amalgamation, the drafting of the laws, the constitution, and putting the intelligence services all together. Uh, and Jeremy, I was a lecturer. Uh, I was heading the department of uh, optometry at uh, University of Durban Wessel then. So I gave up an academic life. Optometry. Uh, yes. Uh, which is clearer, <laughs> one or two? One or two, which is very green. <laughs> So uh, I, I had to, uh, I gave up that life. And then this took me into the world of intelligence and, and then from intelligence to foreign affairs. I hope I answered your question. Yes. Um, but I mean, look, the elephant in the room is, is what does that all mean? Um, because it starts, it starts getting very murky because the media uh, who, of which... I th I'm no friend. Let me just let me just state it for the record. I think the mainstream media has become the establishment, and it has become um, more about narrative and agenda than about truth. And yeah. um, and again, uh, and I'm sure people already are, are are trying to to get me to to say stuff about your brother. So I'm going to just quickly state what you and I said on the phone yeah. yesterday. Yeah. We live in a country in which we should not be associated by. I mean, we should not be judged by our associations. There, there, there's nothing against you, Mo, that can be used. Yes, perhaps Shabir has got, has got some of his own stories, but that's for him to deal with and for people to ask him, right? Yes. yes. Right. So and let's just, just, Jeremy, I just want to make a point on that so your listeners can get it absolutely correct. Mm. You know, we live in a constitutional democracy and... There was this big question in the negotiation about group rights. Right. Do we protect group rights or do we protect individual rights? And our constitution settled on individual rights. Now, there was a time in the history of, of human beings where if one member of the family did something wrong, you arrested mm. the whole thing. And in China, apparently, that is still the case where if, a, if one member of the family is put in prison, the other member's got a feed and so forth. I don't know whether that's the case, but those are all the rumors, etc. We don't live in such a country. 
Whatever crime Shabir Sheikh did is Shabir Sheikh's crime. He's my brother. Nothing will change that. I don't believe that he should be guilty of those crimes, but the courts found him to be guilty. Mm. And as someone who believes in the rule of law, I accept that. And I got to deal with that and the embarrassment of that, and I have to continue living my life. It would be incredibly wrong for me to go to, let's give a name, uh, 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 for me to go to F.W. de Klerk and then say all your family members right. who were associated with apartheid should now be held accountable for apartheid. That is equally wrong. Right. And this is why I reject Malema's politics. Because I am saying that F.W. Duterte's son or daughter, who grew up in democracy, has the same rights as my son or my daughter in that democracy. They are South African citizens. Yeah. So I reject with contempt this thing of family association. And then if the one family member did so, all the other family members must be held by the standard of the one. Because that's a very dangerous argument in a country like South Africa. Yeah, so I'm yeah. appealing to your listeners. Mm. Just think about the consequences of this family association. Yeah, and, because, yeah. and a columnist, uh, Jeremy Gordon, actually wrote about this um, on Politics Web, where he said that you know, uh, there's nothing. You know, Mo hasn't been found guilty of anything. So, and that's and that's a fair comment to make. So now let's talk about let's talk about that Heifer Commission because this is the other yeah. big big part of your of your legacy. Yes. And this and this this involves. I I don't know the truth. I'll be honest. I don't know the truth, um, but I know it involves. Uh, uh, basically divisions and fractions within the ANC and who spied on whom. And uh, Bilalani is one of the is one of the names that is right at the forefront. Yeah. So let me let me uh, be quite honest about that. <clears throat> and uh, and let me apologize yet again, which I've done in my book. Mm. Uh, I should have not gone public about the investigation that ANC intelligence was doing about Bulalani. Mm. Uh, I have reasons to say why I did it. But to be honest with you, Jeremy, those reasons uh, may not stand up to, to media scrutiny mm. or, or public acceptance. I acted uh, inappropriately and I should not have done so. I believed that I was standing up for the abuse of institutions, that I believed that uh, Bulanani was abusing the NPA and state organs for political purposes, and that political purpose was to keep uh, Zuma out of the, uh, the political process, and that Shabir was perhaps a useful, a useful idiot in, in the whole process. Uh, and I believe that that was a is that was a result of Bulalani coming to know of an investigation done by ANC intelligence 
and in particular when Zuma was the head of ANC intelligence on allegations that he may have been a working for the other side. So the Hefe Commission was about that. We had to provide evidence. Uh, we could not provide the evidence, not because uh, we didn't have it, we didn't have uh, access to it. It is more the fact that the, the state will not have allowed access to it. But I don't want to go into the merits or demerits of the mm. allegation. It was wrong for me to have made that allegation public. Um, it was an in internal ANC battle right. that spilled out into the, the public. into the public and to public institutions. And, you know, for that, I am deeply, deeply apologetic. And, and I accept it is a black mark uh, into a lifetime trying to do good. Uh, and that is a black mark. Uh, and I accept it and I made peace with uh, Bularani, uh, his wife, and mm. yeah, but I think it does raise some very important questions. And let me tell you one of the questions mm. it does raise. Should an intelligence officer, when there is perception of uh, wrongdoing, should an intelligence officer speak out? Where should they speak? How should they speak? Etc. Now, I'm, I'm an absolute believer in the whistleblower. If any, if any official comes across information that shows that there is a wrong uh, being done, that official must speak up. Uh, and that is the way we keep, <coughs> we keep uh, democracy on its toes. And that is the way we keep uh, good governance uh, in play. Mm. In that particular case, uh, I thought I was doing it for the purpose of good governance. I should have found another way to do it. Uh, and, at, and I suspected I, I was doing more by anger at the time rather than, than, than rationality. What if, I, what if I play devil's advocate for a second and, and, and say to you, yeah, but you're just saying that to cover your, your, your tracks? Sure, uh, there is. You could you could take that view, but I have then been trying. Uh, I I believe in this, uh, and I genuinely believe that <clears throat> life gives everyone the opportunity to reflect, and those who choose the ability to look back in life and say, hey, these are the things I associated myself with when I was young or whenever. And now that I've aged and I've grown and I've mm. got different wisdom on matters and now that there's a distance between the subject and me, I can reflect on it and I can acknowledge the errors uh, of my uh, ways of errors of my life and make that, make that admission, because that admission is liberatory. It is not, uh, it is not <clears throat> to demean me or to, to cover up, so to speak. I think it's a very liberating thing to be able to look back in life and say, you know, I wasn't a good parent. Uh, I, I should have been a good parent, but I'm not. And this is not to blame you for the rest of your life. Mm. But then it gives you an opportunity to say, how do you want to live the rest of your life? 
So for me, Jeremy, no matter what people say, it is a, a genuine reflection right. uh, that I heard in, in the Hefo Commission and Grand Public. I did not err on the, the fact. I did not err that there was an investigation. But the question that I have to deal with it, did I use that information uh, in a way that it was not acceptable? And I think I would have to accept that that is the case. So what you're saying is that everybody deserves redemption. Every human deserves redemption. Mm. And, and this is why, this is why, and, and, and I think maybe it's my nature. Uh, you know, it's hard for me to punish the people forever. It's just hard. It's just it's so not in my nature. Uh, and this is why I think uh, we had reconciliation. Because reconciliation was precisely that. To, to give everyone an opportunity to look back, to say, wow, what a strange life we lived and what mm. is the path forward in, in a better life to each other. And I think the, the issue of redemption, or the issue of reconciliation, is not, it's not only an act of forgiveness. It is a, an act that places an obligation on you to live a different life. Yeah. And I think that is where, and, and if you don't mind me saying, Jeremy, this is where I feel uh, incredibly sad about our negotiation process. The, we all knew the, that when we came to the negotiations, there was a civil war, and we moved away from the civil war, thanks to the incredible leadership of Mandela, de Klerk, and everyone that took us away from that civil war. But the negotiation gave us an opportunity to build a new country. Now, perhaps it is the way that the ANC used its power that caused large sections of our white uh, compatriots and our white citizens to disconnect from the rebuilding project. And as a consequence of that disconnection, uh, we created two different countries. So we have the one economy in which if you could privatize everything in your life, you will do so. Uh, private school, private water, private electricity, wherever you could disconnect from uh, the public service, you will disconnect. And then you have the other, the, the, the other country in which the overwhelming poor and the overwhelming black is trapped in, in a system of governance which is increasingly becoming inefficient. So we have these two systems. And I was wondering whether it needed to be like this whether we could have in, <clears throat> and, you know, I just think we were not creative enough as a country. And I'm saying not the ANC not creative enough. We, we, the whole of the country, were not creative enough to, to find a way to heal the differences and in such a way that it led to the empowerment of, uh, of, of the whole country. 
I must tell you, I I am in, uh, I'm really, you know, proud to be in a country in which uh, we have such a generous way of giving, and and this is something that is not recognized. But South Africans are, are, are generally giving people, and so there is the spirit of charity that resides in us. Mm. We need to rely more on that spirit of giving, not as charity, but as a kind of, you know, investment into the future. It is, it is what I call uh, generational investment. If we today invest in the children of tomorrow so that they would be able to build a, a country free from all the divisions that we have, then I think we would live in a, in a much different country. Of, mm. of course, we need to get a lot of things right, right? We need to get a lot of things right. Uh, and, and a lot of people who say some stupid things mm. would have to stop saying those stupid things and be held to account for those stupid things. But by and large, do not forget that 75% of the white South Africans in 1994 adopted for negotiations. And that was a remarkable turning point in the negotiation process. I just think we need to come together now mm. to say, this is our country. How do we able to make a contribution to the building of this country uh, and in the way in which we can all see a future here? <laughs> and that's a question that, the, as, as you said earlier, that the ANC is grappling with quite a bit. Yes, the um, ANC is grappling with that. But what I am saying, Jeremy, mm. is that as citizens of the country, we should stop letting our faith completely be determined by the political lenses of political parties. Right. We are citizens. We are active citizens. Nothing should stop us from being able to make the contribution. So let me let me give you a, a, a thing I do on Fridays in my house. So on Friday, we have a lunch. And everyone in the house will sit and have lunch with us. And that includes the domestic workers. And that includes a, a, uh, an au pair who comes to teach my daughter the certain arty things and so forth. So the last Friday, and she happens to be Afrikaans. So, and on this table of immunity, we, immunity. we were, were chatting. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, and she raises the, she says, Uom, and she calls me Uom, Uom, can I ask you a question? And I said, yes. It says, uh, what is the future for us whites in this country? You know? Uh, you know, I am Afrikaans, and what is going to happen to us? And I said, you know, my darling, I could tell you nothing is going to happen to you, but you're not going to believe me. So tell me your fears. And she said, you know, with all the farm murders and all these things that are happening, uh, it just seems to me that Swat Khafar is coming back. You know, I said, wow, you know, that, that is such... An important thing. And then, I didn't answer the question. I didn't give the political bullshit answer. I asked the domestic workers, and I'm mm. just 
not giving names. I said, guys, what do you say to so-and-so and her fears? Come on, tell her. And what a fascinating discussion occurred. And both the people who work in my house in terms of managing the affairs, just saying, my darling, we don't hear this in the townships. We don't hear that in the townships, people are talking about, let's go and attack Africana, white farms, etc. We don't even pick. In fact, we see a lot of white people coming to our townships, right? And then they were saying to her, why don't you come into the townships? Come and, come and stay with us, see how we live, etc. So the point for me, Jeremy, is that those kind of conversations They're not are happening. not happening. So you're saying, this a, not happening. you're saying there's a disconnect. Absolute disconnect, right? And we as active citizens need to find the way of bringing that connect. Uh, why is, I mean, we live corridor lives, don't we? I mean, I, I go from where I live in Pretoria to all the malls, all the schools that I know, but it's a corridor. And so too do people from Mamalodi and Shoshanguve, they're also in a corridor. And the corridors don't meet, right? And because the corridors don't meet, we, I, I, I will always have a fear if that other, other corridor should come into my life, what right. is going to happen? Yeah. But it is just the fear, because the truth of the matter is, that corridor and my corridor, in order to sustain, we have to come together to be able to discuss how we're going to take this country forward. And both sides have, both sides have issues of real concern. Both sides have issues that need to be put on the table and, and be accepted as a truth, and we both have to deal with the issues. And I just feel that in, in the real dialogues we're not having, but there's so much a dialogue on the echo chambers, right? I mean, like mm. in, in code, uh, you know, it's like now we speak of each other in code. Uh, right. Anyways, I speak too much. Uh, tell me no, to shut up. And, no, uh, no, no, no. I. This is all about listening to you. I've got one or two more questions to ask you, if you don't yes. mind. Um, I want to ask you a very blunt question. Um, be, because you are quite close to Jacob Zuma, can can it be assumed that, that you were part of the Zuma faction who wasn't really keen on the, the Mbeki faction? And so... Uh, I can then assume that you would defend him fiercely, Azuma that is. Or, 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 or can we say that the media has done a great job at completely misrepresenting him? Well, no, let me, let, let, let me speak for myself. The, right. There was a time I was incredibly close to Zuma. I believed in him as a leader. Mm. I believed that he would be able to unite the ANC. And at the time in which I supported him for him becoming president, uh, I believed that he would be able to unite the ANC at that time and introduce a, 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 a government that was going to be so much more different than what it turned out to be. Zuma's uh, period in government, for me, was a disappointment, uh, a very big disappointment. And it 
got me fired. I, in effect, was fired by Zuma when, uh, you know, when I was offered an ambassadorial post to leave the intelligence services. In, in net effect, I considered that to be uh, a firing. So I've had what I would call a, a dignified fallout. Uh, I haven't spoken to him since, uh, and I've moved on with my life, you know. But I remain disappointed uh, in him as the person who governed the country. He could have governed differently, uh, but he didn't govern as, as I would like. Now, I think in the Zuma description in the media, I think they... We, we have a fundamentally lazy media. We, I mean, I'm, I'm just sorry to say it. The, mm. uh, a media that is looking constantly for headlines and looking for simple descriptions of very complicated matters. Politics and understanding personalities is a deeply complicated matter. So you would have a view that you see, Zuma, uh, you sh should have known Zuma is corrupt or whatever because a, a, what, a leopard doesn't lose its spots or whatever. So he must have been corrupt in the ANC underground days and you, you didn't see it or you didn't want to see it, etc. Now, I don't, you know, that's, that's I call the burden of righteousness. Mm. Right? The burden of righteousness is that you you always want to be right. And you think you can do this from a moral kind of position. No, life is a little bit more complicated like than that. And let me give you an example. The clerk was someone who was elected by a essentially an undemocratic process of only having white South Africans elected the clerk as president. But the clerk produced a democratic outcome by having negotiations with, uh, with Mandela. Right. So undemocratic situations can produce democratic outcomes. Mm. And democratic outcomes, like Zuma's ascendancy to power, can produce undemocratic outcomes, like state capture. Now, Journalists need to understand the complexities of politics, the complexities of personalities, and how personalities influence politics. Uh, and again, if you just look at the whole Trump thing, you will see right now there is no concession on, on, on loss of the election. And that is speaking volumes to the institutions or to the persons involved in the United States of America's election. So... We need to have, we need, you know, I mean, I don't want to use a, a thing. You know, journalists need to develop the skills to describe things as they are rather than imposing their hopes and wishes mm. onto how they wish things to be. And there's a fine line between that. Uh, and so I think, I think they got Jacob Zuma wrong in the beginning. Uh, and much of painting with the Jacob Zuma brush at the moment is is Schadenfreude, in in my view. Uh, but does Zuma have uh, things to be 
that he needs to be held accountable for? Absolutely yes. And here's the bottom line. If you do not want to be held accountable, do not go for public position. Yeah, right? because that's a good point. If you, if, if you want to hold public position, you accept that you are going to be held accountable. Right. And you don't say, I'm, you can't hold me accountable because I hold public position. Well, no. Mm. No, no, no. If you go for public position, you accept you're going to be held accountable. Don't change the level of accountability when you are made to be accountable. Right. So, does he have to go before the Zonda Commission? Yes, he yeah. has to go before the Zonda Commission because as a former president, Leave Jacob Zuma aside. As a former president, it's the wrong message to send to a commission of inquiry established by a democratic government. Leave alone the side that the fact that it was established by him, by a democratic government, that this is the culture of democracy, that when the institutions of democracy are created, whether it's the courts, whether it's the parliament, whether it's the, the government departments, you have to hold yourself accountable. And holding yourself accountable is building democracy. It's not demeaning democracy. And it is for that reason, and, and many people forget this, when Nelson Mandela was brought before court on the, the rugby union matter, he went before court as the president of the country because for him, building the institutions of democracy is more important than the private humiliation that you may take mm. as a result of that process. And I think, and I think that's, that's the kind of leadership we need in this country that moves beyond the narcissistic leader. And my God, do we have many narcissistic leaders, you know. Mm. The, and let me give you a tip. You want to know about a narcissistic leader? Whoever talks about themselves in the third person watch that person again right? <laughs> and I'll give an example I uh, you can't ask Mo Sheikh as the president of the republic hey you are Mo Sheikh you speak I you make <laughs> to speak to yourself in the third person watch that that, that is the trait of narcissistic um, uh, egotistic behavior it, uh, may I call you Uemo? After that, after yeah. that story, I think calling you Uemo, I think, is the best description ever. <laughs> can we can we come Uemo. in for that? Can we come in Uem for that for that final lap? Um, yes. All right, you've got a crystal ball in front of you. Tell me what you see uh, with regards to the ANC and with regards to the country. Give give me give me twenty five years of your crystal ball. Okay, I uh, yes, I see the ANC uh, governing the next term, uh, the next election, but with a reduced minority, a reduced majority, but they would still govern. And perhaps for the next uh, maybe two terms, things may change in about 15 years from now in, in the sense of the opposition party because... By and large, the opposition parties will never reach that majority, in my view, that will, will unseat the ANC. However, uh, there could be other uh, outliers to this. 
I I don't see the EFF as replacing the ANC uh, fundamentally because the the radical youth, as reflected in in the EFF currently, the radical youth does not capture the 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 essence of the majority of black people. And let, let me just be quite clear about that. Because uh, what has really uh, really taken me and, and something that I've been constantly analyzing, why has there been no social explosion or social rupture in our country despite even the covert situation? And I think there is something happening in black communities or in the townships or in the informal economies that we don't quite understand uh, because it defies the kind of logic that uh, we have. So I think I would just for now say that we don't understand what is happening in those informal economies. I think the, the ANC government moving on the social grants, moving on the... The basic income grants are essentially buying by by that is is lifting or putting a net in so far as hunger and starvation is concerned. So it is a poverty net, and I think that will sustain for a while. Uh, I think the character of political parties are all changing. Mm. The the ANC is, is changing uh, because increasingly the Alongside the three generations that exist in the country, where and the three generations very quickly, Jeremy, and I think it affects all parties, that uh, people who lived their lives 75% uh, under apartheid. Right? So our people I will generally put maybe 65, 70 onwards. Right? So their experience is of a life of 75% in apartheid. Then there's the next category of people who have lived their lives 50% under apartheid, 50% under democracy. And the last category is people who lived all of their lives under democracy. So you'll see it is that last category that where change is coming. And it is the experience that people will have in that category that is going to determine the trajectory of the country. Uh, now, say, say what you want to say, by and large, the experience of the last category of people is that it has not been all that bad. Firstly, politically, people have lived free. So political violence has never been there. So, so the category who live under, uh, all their lives under democracy, and that will make anyone who is younger than 28 years old or 26 years old, right? Uh, political violence has never occurred. However, there's a duality of experience. If you were white or, or brown, uh, you would have had a different, uh, a different experience because of the privilege, uh, the benefit of privilege. That change for me is such that it will keep the ANC in power at least for two, three more terms. And then the dynamic within the the changing character of the ANC and opposition will determine what happens after that. Well, that was quite uh, a 
that was that was quite a a a, a, a political answer but it was good enough thank you <laughs> someone has started mowing their lawn and i am now struggling to hear you so on that note mo um, um, mo <laughs> it's been it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you thank you for your time i really appreciate it um and uh good luck with the sale of your book i definitely will buy it and i definitely will read it and um i'll let you know uh, unfortunately I didn't have enough time. I'm reading a lot of books at the moment, and between the time I that, know, I know. Yeah, I didn't have enough time to read it, but I will read it, promise, and I will let you know what I think. Jeremy, I want to say something to you. Yes. Uh, as you know, that I had some deep apprehensions about uh, the show. Right? Yeah. And I must say that uh, you are a remarkable host. Uh, you ask very probing questions, and I Thank do you. hope that you would become a journalist. I do hope that your shows uh, get, uh, you know, great viewership, etc. Thank you. Because, uh, to be quite honest, uh, you're a breath of fresh air in this uh, field. Thank you very much, Wim. <laughs> Have a great day. My name is Jim. This was Jim Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.